0: Here's some biblical wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the holy is prudence. That's from Proverbs chapter nine, verse 10. Here's another one from Isaiah chapter eight. The Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. So that's the biblical view. Here's the modern American secularist view. I believe in myself. So, what is the basis for a wise life? Fear the Lord or belief in yourself? Christianity, as you know, has faded from the center to the margins of the Western imagination. We may live in a Christ-haunted America, but it is not a Christ-centered America. The Nicene Creed has been replaced with a simpler secular creed. I believe in myself as that creed. This affirmation that you should look to yourself as the ultimate arbiter of value is the secular colonization of a religious impulse. You know, everybody has to worship something or somebody. There's always something of ultimate value in your life, whether it's family or work or your Corvette. You can't make people not put their belief in something. We're just built for it. But as the early Greek cultures knew, that some of these gods, maybe all of them, were in fact the gods of illusion. And that to redirect our belief to them was to uh, have a life that would end in terror. The Greeks used to say that those that the gods would destroy, they would first make mad. You see, believing in myself is probably at the heart of at least some of the struggles of mental illness in the United States. But still, it seems to be celebrated everywhere, daytime TV, inspirational books, and Disney animated movies. The truth is questionable adage, which has some kinds of truth to it, but not ultimate ultimate truth, is seen by many to be self-evidently true. What else could you believe in? It's as if the garage door of unreality is forever closed off the minds of the self-believer to any real experience of transcendence or purpose in life beyond what you can grab. Since there is nothing else to believe in beyond me, I think this earthbound wisdom goes, this pseudo-wisdom, then I guess I have to believe in myself. This is of course quite Contrary to the biblical view of the human condition. Humility is to see yourself as you really are. Mortal, limited, doubting, and prone to self-destructive behavior. We're made to be brilliant, shining lights, but often enough, on our best day, we just barely flicker. To proclaim the gospel is to say to the unbelievers, baptized and unbaptized, that the way out is to believe in Christ, to proclaim Him to the culture, that really believing yourself as the ultimate arbiter of all value is a dead end. So, how's that working? Does it matter in the end? This is Oro Valley Catholic, this is Father John Arnold, and yes, actually, it matters quite a lot. Here's the basic problem with believing in yourself. The problem is, how do you deal with the human proclivity for evil? How about my proclivity for evil? You see, if you're not trustworthy, how can you believe in yourself? If you're the kind of person that you would think is slightly disreputable in some matters, how could you ask others to trust in you completely as the center of their lives? And if you can't ask others to trust in you completely as the center of your life, why are you trusting in yourself? You know, even if you don't believe in good and evil, you can still believe that you can make the decisions that undermine your own happiness or the happiness of whomever you're supposed to care about, if you care about anybody. No, it's not really just your life. You didn't bring yourself into the world or raise yourself or even build the interstate highway system. You really owe something to others. Why do you not have greater care for our imperfect world, as imperfect and sometimes deeply disappointing as it is? Is there any indication that when you burn it all down, you can do better? Good question to ask in the midst of all these George Floyd um, protests. Lots of imperfection to deal with, especially the problems of racism. But burning out TV shops, I'm not sure that's a step in the right direction. Quite confident that it's not. You see, even people who are well-intentioned somehow participate in this dysfunction that runs our dysfunctional world. How can it be that you want to do such good, supposedly, and you're so destructive of other people's livelihoods? You know, we may not be able to make the world a lot better at once, but we can sure try to avoid making it worse. Have you ever thought why the world is so screwed up? Here are some basic ideas. For the Greeks, the problem of moral evil was really either a problem of ignorance, you just didn't know what was right, or about bad social environments, you grew up with abusive parents, or you had significant mental health issues, you had a bad demon. So good public education, counseling, the right drugs, parenting classes, this should set the world, right? Maybe make a couple of blood sacrifices. Easy, right? Well, the Greeks, and I would say a modern host of secular reformers and daytime talk show hosts, don't quite grasp the thread that runs through all of human self-destructions. What's this idea that secularists and pagans miss? Well, it's the Judeo-Christian critique of the human project. And that critique centers around the reality of human sin, that down the middle of each of us, there is this fracture. We cannot separate humanity into the good guys and the bad guys. All of us at some place participate in this dysfunction that's called sin that is the basis for uh, all the troubles of our world. Ignorance, bad upbringing, yes, even mental illness explains some moral e- evils, but people brought up in great homes, graduates of the Wharton School of Business, fantastically mentally healthy, still steal from their clients or, and then go home and beat their spouse. Of course, when we talk about sin, We see this prevalence even in those who seem to have no excuse for evil. Sin's existence is not explained solely by ignorance, bad upbringing, or mental illness. They play a role, but in some respects, they're a red herring. Sin is something we all experience. We sin when we both know that what we are doing is wrong and then intentionally do it anyway. We become corrupt when we convince ourselves that what is clearly wrong, stealing, is in fact okay in this situation. Here's St. Paul, a great Jewish man and follower of Christ, who talks about sin in Romans chapter 7. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I can will what is right, but I can't do it. For I do not know the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. You see, if we're flawed, we really can't trust ourselves. That's the problem of believing in yourself. It's like having an untrustworthy friend. It may be that the best you can do is to believe in yourself, but to make yourself the center of reality, there's something really screwed up about that. You see, if we can't trust ourselves completely, and trust by its nature needs to be in somebody who is trustworthy, and completely so, then we really can't vouchsafe the, our own lives. Even Catholics struggle with broken marriage, just despair, and loss of all whom they love. Our happiness must lie in something permanent, which is to say, something that can't be taken away from us. That transcendent power ought to enter back into space and time to rescue us from our own self-degeneracy. We need a savior, we Catholics know that. That savior is the ground and means of our happiness. That savior has to be completely trustworthy. So do you want to be helped? Well, first recognize that there's something that blinds you to reality that's called sin. Sin leads to death, not physical death, but something far worse. That's what the gospel is about today. Why we don't fear anything in this world, at least not irrationally. We should have rational fears of what's gonna happen after we die. And now we talk about the wisdom of the gospel. Here's a little learning about St. Matthew's gospel, which we'll be working through this year. Matthew's gospel has five major speeches. One of them is the Sermon on the Mount, but the speech that we have today is this whole section in, the, in, in uh, Matthew that's about discipleship, mission, persecution, and martyrdom. Because remember, Matthew ends when Jesus, at the very last, sends the disciples to go out into the whole world, proclaim the good news, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's called the great commandment, to go out into God's world and proclaim God's kingdom. Every Christian, has the obligation to do that. Jesus in his ministry confronted, if you remember, the sinful, the self-satisfied, and the self-reliant. They all knew what the truth was. And they're telling God all about it as Jesus teaches them, which as you know from a believing Christian are some crazy scenes in the gospel. When Jesus talks to his disciples about death, which is what everybody ought to fear, he talks about something all of us accept as implacable, unrelenting, and the ultimate challenge to our self-reliance. You know, physical death is kind of scary because it can hurt in some, a lot of situations. We know that medical science can help us, but still, it's the loneliness of death that can cause people anxiety. But Jesus teaches disciples that That's really not what to fear, at least not irrationally. What you should fear, and it's a rational fear, is the one who can cast body and soul into Gehenna. You see, for Christians, that's called the second death. You know, in the modern, escapist, secular world, some believe they don't wake up after death. They're not going to be that lucky. The problem is, is we do wake up. Paganism and the Christian world understand that The life on the other side is not a bed of roses. This idea of materialism being the only thing that exists, that is just a way of running away from God because materialism doesn't really explain human or any other existence, not in and of itself. You see, Jesus rose from the dead and taught that the other side is not nothingness. Jesus counseled that we ought to have a rational rather than irrational fear of death. It is rational to be afraid of pain and death physically, but it's wiser to fear spiritual death because spiritual death is going to last forever. Worst news, that death can start on this side of the grave if we descend or we watch the world around us to descend in greedy, self-centered, dominantly angry ways of life. This is not the gospel. This is not the way to union with God. You see, if we don't love God, if we don't fear God, we lack respect for the divine and for the mystery of human existence. Humility is the virtue we want to nurture as Christians because not only for our own benefit, but for the benefit of others. We're supposed to be a shining light in this world and how we proclaim the gospel. That's part of what Jesus is saying to his disciples because humility is to be in touch with reality and to not be intimidated by proclaiming that reality. The unbeliever may not understand reality like we do. That is their impoverishment. The grace of humility or fear of the Lord is the foundation of Christian life. And so as we constantly try to uh, prepare ourselves for mission, how is it that we develop that Christian virtue? Here are some ideas um, on developing the great virtue of fear of the Lord. First, fear of the Lord is really taught all in scripture as the basis of uh, Christian and Jewish uh, spiritual consciousness. You know, if you can't really just feel the love for God, you ought to feel some fear of, of him. That's what Jesus's point is. It all starts somewhere. First, Learn to fear God in how you think. See, how we think about God affects how we love God, and how we love God affects how we think of others. Well, consider it like this. Don't you think Christians and others have kind of taken God for granted? Like God the Father is uh, some senile old codger that doesn't really care what the young folk are up to as long as they're happy. They all make their own deal about that, right? That is such nonsense. You see, what we do opens us up to happiness. And what we do can also foreclose the possibility of happiness in our life and the world to come. If our lives are to have any real significance, then there's gonna have to be consequences in the world to come. So yes, it's better to love God, and that is the growth in, in the Christian spirit. But we all start somewhere And when you're not feeling the love, at least try to feel the fear of God. As the book of Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That kind of fear is not ideal, but it's a start. So try doing something that actually respects God's creation. Here's some homework. Spare the life of a bug. It may be inconvenient to you. It may even be... uh, Seem as nothing to you. But friends, you didn't make the bug, God did. Here's another one, fear of God in word. Imagine that you get to heaven's gates and you meet St. Peter, the keeper of the keys. You're asked, so John, what do you bring with you that makes this place heaven? John unwisely says, well, Jesus is my kind of guy. I've always really admired him. And St. Peter will say, John, you're not ready. And so the next day I come back and he says the same question. Why, well, what you bring, make this heaven. And I say, well, I mean, I'm a hard worker. I'm pretty smart. I I really try. St. Peter will say, still not ready. So this goes on for what seems like an eternity, but it's really only purgatory. By the end, you're frustrated and beat. And so you get back for one last try. And St. Peter says, so what do you bring that makes this place heaven? And then you say, what's really true? I got nothing. When you recognize that, then you're going to hear the best thing that St. Peter will ever say to you. Now you are ready. You see, wealthy and decadent America, and we all kind of participate in that in some weird way, has all too comfortable familiarity with the divine that drives out respect for God. I think we think, well, can it really be heaven unless I'm there? Can other people be happy unless I'm there? You know, John Henry Newman, the saint, said, Fear and love has to go together. Always fear God, always love God to your dying day, because it keeps the relationship honest between you and God. So fear God in what you say and how you listen. So here's something, this is a tough one. When somebody corrects you and it turns out they're wrong, you know you're right, let it go. Let someone who's incompetent tell you what to do without expressing to them why they're so inadequate. Just let them have their own path to God. God knows more about making them saints than you ever will because he knows more about making you and me saints than we ever will. So how's this one? Fear God indeed. Well, here's a good thing. You know, Jesus worked. He worked hard. And so work for human beings is more than punching the clock, doing our time, or collecting a paycheck. We're not just passing the time away when we work. Work is this sacred duty, working in the house, outside the house. Working is this redemptive act. God worked in creation. It's at the very root of human existence. Working is a participation in the life of Christ if we offer our work uh, through Christ to the Father. See, work brings us closer to God, whether it's a household chore, making the bed, wiping down the toilet, a homework assignment for kids, sports practice, or an office job. These are all essential parts of sanctification. It's not just sitting around and thinking holy thoughts about God. It's when we get off our keisters and do something. That's how we love God. You love your spouse. You love your family when you go to work and you're caring for them. So the next time you grumble, although I know you never do, but the next time you're tempted to grumble, because you have to do something, like the dishes, make your bed, or show up for work on time. Remember, that's an honor because work has been redeemed by Jesus. So love your work. And if you have the tendency, and I've heard it around the rectory occasionally, to grumble about the next thing you have to do, here's an idea. Why don't you get it all together and secretly do someone else's chore, and then when you do the work they were supposed to do, consider it a a joy. You know, this idea of uh, believing in yourself, that you're self-sufficient, it's been around for a long time. When we come to our conclusion, I wanna tell you about how this has manifested itself in the past in a heresy called Pelagianism. So we're gonna bring these meditations to a close. I'm gonna tell you about an Irishman and all great heresies probably start with the Irish somewhere. So this Irishman's name was Morganus Pelagius and in late antiquity, he was the great, um, at least as critics said, the great proclaimer of believing in yourself. Uh, And Pelagianism was given to this teaching that If you worked really hard, you could make yourself a saint. You see, Pelagius was a theologian uh, in some ways, and uh, he talked about developing good habits based on the Greek philosophers. And so there's a lot of truth in what Pelagius said. The problem with working hard at the moral life, doing all the things that we talk about, about humility is you really can't get there from here. You can't get to heaven from here just on human effort. The point of humility is to recognize your need for God's grace and accepting in yourself, your own inadequacy. That's why God sent his son. That's why God sent the disciples into the world. It's why God sends us, to let humanity know that they're not on their own. It's not a bad thing to believe in yourself. You have to have some some confidence in yourself. The problem is when believing yourself becomes the center of your whole sense of what the world is about. You know, none of this in the end is ever to suggest that it's wrong to be self confident or recognize in humility that God gives you great talents. I hope he gave you a great talents for a lot of different things, but we deceive ourselves. When we think believing in ourselves is all there is, and so when Jesus sends his disciples out, it's very much about this sense that there is something more than the efforts of the disciples that's operative in the work of the church. We all have accountability to God for how we use how we use uh, our lives and the choices we make. But you remember the fundamental problem. Um, that's at the heart of sin. It's the story in Genesis about Adam and Eve, the temptation of the serpent. Do you remember, the lie the serpent told Adam and Eve in the garden wasn't that God didn't exist. That's the modern lie. That they would never have believed. It was that they could, by their own efforts, be God, or at least God's. But it was all an illusion. It was a truth mixed with a lie. Because Jesus will give us immortal life, which is what is kind of fundamental about the idea of God's, is we won't be eternal, but we'll be immortal, but we'll never be God, the center of existence. And so to see ourselves as accountables, as stewards, this is the basis of the uh, Christian life. And so we ought to be very skeptical of secular ideas of of believing in yourself, because it quickly becomes in America, is that I get to be the arbiter of reality. That is childish. It's a holy thing to wanna be accountable and for how we use the gift of our lives. I wanna leave you with this last little thought in just a moment. Uh, Just before I let you go, I wanted to tell you that on our website, I put a great little video from uh, Marcus Grodi's show, The Journey Home, and featuring Leah Labresco's sergeant and sister Teresa Althea Noble, who both were atheists. Uh, uh, Leah was brought up at home that just was non-religious. Teresa was brought up Catholic and wandered away. And just the reflections on how they thought and why hell had no meaning for them. And they found it off-putting that people would threaten them, that hell was gonna be nasty. It just doesn't mean anything for them. But I thought you might find it's interesting to think about how unbelievers think about all of this. So I just want to tell you, thanks for listening and hope you found something of value in these reflections. And this has been Father John Arnold, Noro Valley Catholic. Until next time.